The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Whether it's Baker's Simple Truth Turkey or Mac and Cheese with Murray's English Cheddar or pie made with fresh Cosmic Crisp apples, there are many dishes we look forward to sharing during the holidays. And Baker's has all the fresh ingredients you need to turn today's holidays into tomorrow's memories. Baker's, fresh for everyone. And right now, you can save when you shop your faves. Just buy six or more participating sale items and save 50 cents each with your card. Bakers, fresh for everyone. On the afternoon of March 4th, 1905, a police officer in Kingsland, New Jersey, began receiving reports of shots fired and a dead man in an apartment building in an Italian neighborhood. The officer and a doctor went to the building to see what had occurred. There was a general store on the first floor, and above that was a tiny apartment. The door to the apartment stood half open. In one corner of the first room was an old rocking chair with a body sitting in it. The man's legs were crossed, and he held a briar pipe in his right hand. His head was slumped forward, and a dark line of blood ran down from his forehead onto his white shirt. The victim's name was Joseph Santa, and everyone in Kingsland knew who he was. He was the town's richest resident, although, if you asked around, no one would tell you exactly what the man did to make all his money. There were rumors, of course, spoken only of in hushed whispers that the man was somehow connected. The doctor lifted Santa's chin and quickly determined that someone had shot him twice in the skull. This was not Santa's apartment. It belonged to an Italian immigrant named Giovanni Tola. Like many members of the Italian community throughout this area, Tola had come to the United States by writing to Santa and sending him some money. A year later, Tola, his wife Antoinette, and their two young daughters were on a boat to New Jersey with the promise of a job once they got there. Both Giovanni and Antoinette were both in their 20s, and neither of them spoke much English. A frantic young woman had come running out of the building and down the street with a gun in her hand, shouting the words, I shot him, in Italian. It wasn't long before Sheriff James Mercer of Bergen County tracked down Antoinette Tola and arrested her for Joseph Santa's murder. Police accused Antoinette of sneaking up behind Santa and shooting the man twice in the head. Within three hours, a grand jury had indicted Antoinette Tola for first-degree murder. Two weeks later, she was put on trial. The prosecutor felt he had a slam-dunk case. Not only were there several witnesses claiming they had seen the defendant rushing out of the building to screaming she had shot the man, but on top of that, Santa's six-year-old son Rocco told police that he had been there and he had seen the whole thing. He told authorities Mr. Tola and his papa had been talking when he saw Mrs. Tola creep up behind his papa and shoot him in the head. 
Gathering other witness statements proved difficult. No one who lived in or around the building seemed to speak English. A local student was brought in as an interpreter, but it became clear that even he was having difficulty tracking what everyone was saying. Nonetheless, witness statements were taken, all stating more or less the same thing, that Antoinette Tola murdered Joseph Santa in cold blood. When Antoinette Tola finally told her own story before the court, she said through an interpreter that Santa had threatened her honor, so she shot him. Santa, she said, had been making untoward advances on her for months. But her husband was too afraid to step in and say something because Santa was such a powerful figure, and that he had been the one who had arranged for them to come to America. Antoinette said at one point she even went to Mrs. Santa looking for help. It was the widow Santa who gave her the advice to buy a gun in order to frighten her husband. Antoinette said that on the afternoon of March 4th, Santa showed up at their apartment drunk. The men argued, and Antoinette's husband ended up rushing out of the apartment in a fit of anger, leaving his wife alone with Santa. After that, Santa grabbed Antoinette and kissed her against her will. She said she bit his hand and retreated to the other side of the room. That's when Santa threatened that he was going to have her even if he had to kill her husband to do it, adding that he had a gun in his pocket. Antoinette fled to the kitchen and waited to see what happened next. Things soon fell quiet. Then she began to hear Santa snore. Realizing the man had fallen asleep in the rocking chair, Antoinette took that opportunity to leave the apartment. But she returned about a half hour later to find both her husband asleep in bed and Santa still passed out in the rocker. She tried to sneak past Santa, but he grabbed her by the arm and tried to drag her into his lap. When she resisted, he pulled his own gun and waved it at her after which she said she had no choice but to pull the tiny gun she'd been carrying with her for protection and shot the man. Antoinette then added that Santa gave one final proclamation. You have done me what I intended to have done with you. The prosecutor jumped on the statement, demanding to know how Santa could have said anything with a bullet in his head. After that, Mrs. Tola grew confused and broke down crying on the witness stand. The prosecution rested, and on the afternoon of April 26th, the jury pronounced Antoinette Tola guilty of murder. She was sentenced to death by hanging. A few petitions for leniency were sent to Governor Edward C. Stokes. Other requests for help worked their way through the Italian-American community. These pleas eventually made their way to the Italian Consul General, Count Massiglia, who would go on to request the services of a particular expert who might help. This expert strode up the stairs of the Essex courthouse with great purpose. People stopped and stared at this woman who was dressed all in black from head to toe, her head covered by a magnificent black hat. More than one person who saw her that day mistook her for a very extravagant nun. As she entered the courtroom, one man stood up from his place in the audience to allow the lady room to enter. Only she strode right past him to the front of the courtroom, where she announced her name to the judge. Mrs. Mary Grace Quackenbush, for the defense. Later in life, Mary Grace would be known by other names as well. Mary Grace Humiston, for one. There was also another nickname given to her by the newspapers once the public learned about this remarkable woman's gifts. Not only as a lawyer for those in need, but as one of history's greatest detectives you've likely never heard of. For a time, the newspapers called her Mrs. Sherlock Holmes. I'm Nate Hale, and the game's afoot.
And this is The Conspirators. She was born Mary Grace Winterton in 1869. Her father was a well-to-do merchant and an influential figure in the Baptist Church. Coming from old New York money and a male-dominated society, Grace, as she preferred to be known, pretty much had her whole life planned out for in advance. Only Grace didn't see it that way. She went to Hunter College before beginning what she originally thought would be a long-term teaching job at the all-boys collegiate school. Her first husband was Dr. Henry Quackenbush. Although the marriage didn't last after Grace's husband got caught in what was described as peephole practices in his office. After divorcing him, Grace quit her job and enrolled in night classes at the New York University School of Law. This was out of necessity since the evening program was the only one of its kind that would admit women and minorities. Grace proved to be an exemplary student who sat in the front row her entire time attending NYU. She managed to graduate the three-year program in just two, and was ranked seventh in her class. It was right around this time she began wearing her signature all-black wardrobe. Most of her family and friends assumed she had earned her law degree in order to manage her family's fortune. But instead, she took her money and went on from NYU Law to a short stint with the Legal Aid Society. Then she passed the bar and opened what she called the People's Law Firm. Grace had an innate sense throughout her life that she needed to help those less fortunate than her. She recognized that the poorest New York residents, in particular poor immigrants, required legal assistance they weren't able to get elsewhere. She soon gained a reputation as a champion for immigrants, challenging deportations and assisting unpaid child workers. It was through her work for the immigrant community that the Italian Consul General learned of her and asked if she could help Antoinette Tola avoid the hangman's noose. One of Grace's mentors at NYU Law School was the dean, William Clarence D. Ashley. He instilled in her the belief that every good attorney should always remain focused on the important facts of the case. One needed to study the details and apply deductive reasoning in order to glean the truth. This was a lesson that stuck with Grace throughout her life. Grace felt a deep connection to Antoinette Tola. Both young women were the same age, and the facts of the case pointed to Antoinette being someone who, like Grace, was at the mercy of a world run by men who looked at women as second-class citizens. Grace had only become a full-fledged lawyer two months earlier, and she had never argued a case on her own. Grace's first move to help Antoinette Tola was making a direct appeal to Governor Stokes. She met with the governor who told her he believed Antoinette Tola was guilty and that he was unable to help her. But he did offer Grace a copy of Antoinette's record of appeal for her to take home and read for herself in order to see what a futile task lay ahead. The case was quite open and shut, he said. By the time Grace was allowed to meet with the governor, time was running perilously short. Grace had only two days before Antoinette Tola was to be hanged. She took the heavy law book home and read through it cover to cover. At one point she came to a certain passage that made her pause. It said... No pistol seems to have been found other than the one used by the defendant. Her account of Santa's exhibiting a pistol as well as her statement of his remark, after he was shot through the brain, is manifestly fanciful. Why did they use the phrase, no pistol seems to have been found? 
This struck Grace as odd. Especially after Antoinette remained insistent that Santa had a gun and threatened her with it. If she could prove Joseph really did have a gun and threatened Antoinette with it, that would make it a clear case of self-defense. She woke the governor up with a midnight phone call asking to be granted permission to view the case records. The governor agreed. The following day was a Sunday. Grace asked the prosecutor about the curious statement in the appeals book, but all he did was reassure her that no gun had been found. But Grace wasn't done. She got an idea to visit the county coroner, and instead of playing coy about it, she directly asked the man if she could see Santa's gun. The man hesitated, then he rummaged around in another room and came back with a fully loaded pistol. Immediately, Grace rushed to phone the governor and tell him that there had indeed been a gun found, only it was never entered into evidence. After that, Grace went to see Antoinette Tola and questioned her again. The story Antoinette Tola told her was similar to the one that had been widely accepted, only now Grace realized there were a few key details that the original translator had left out that changed the narrative considerably. According to Antoinette, Santa had been coming around her apartment making sexual advances toward her for weeks. On that fateful afternoon, he showed up drunk and waving a gun in her face, telling her that he would either pay to have his way with her, or he would take her by force. Santa's six-year-old son had been playing outside for most of the event. He entered the apartment just in time to witness the shooting itself, which meant he hadn't seen his father threatening Antoinette with a gun a short time earlier. And the little boy had also left out the way Tola had forcefully grabbed Antoinette. Then, as the two struggled, she reached for her own gun and shot him. Grace was able to prove this by examining the medical examiner's report showing clearly the fatal shot had come from the front, not from someone sneaking up and shooting the man in the back of the head as the prosecutor claimed. Grace presented all this new evidence to both Governor Stokes and the court. She was then given the option at that point of either allowing Antoinette's sentence of death to be commuted to life imprisonment or attempt to receive a new trial by filing another appeal. Life imprisonment was a sure bet, but it was only a tiny step up from a death sentence. Grace gambled on filing the appeal, and she ended up taking her case all the way to the Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court gave a decidedly mixed ruling. They ruled that while Grace had submitted sufficient evidence to justify a new trial, they remained powerless to grant it. But Grace wasn't giving up. Grace took a rather broad interpretation of the law by claiming that when the court claimed they saw sufficient cause to show Antoinette Tola had acted in self-defense, yet remained unable to do anything about it, this actually warranted a full pardon. Eventually, the case was settled by a special board who sent their recommendation by a vote of 6-2 to two that Antoinette Tola's death sentence be reduced to seven and a half years in prison. This was just the first of many victories in Grace's lengthy career. During the early years of the People's Law Firm, Grace was approached by several people who had gone south and then were never heard from again. She went down south personally and discovered a wide network of rampant peonage in turpentine camps and cotton plantations. Immigrants were coerced into working for practically no wages under inhumane working conditions, in a system that was just barely a step above slavery. Grace's investigation would prompt the Department of Justice to open their own inquiry into the peonage system. The Justice Department would eventually hire Grace as a special assistant to the United States District Attorney for the Southern District of New York. She was the first woman in history to ever hold a senior position in the Justice Department. As part of her investigation, Grace traveled extensively all around the world, 
to Egypt, Turkey, Greece, Italy, and Germany, among other places. It was on these trips she learned there existed a vast global network designed to entice foreigners to America, then force them into peonage. In July 1907, Grace was sent to the Sunnyside Plantation in Greenville, Mississippi to investigate allegations of terrible working conditions for Italian laborers. During the course of her investigation, Grace spent weeks living in the poorly built shacks the immigrant laborers were forced to live in. She drank the same rusty water they drank, and she got to personally listen to and witness the awful conditions these people were forced to endure. This set off a major confrontation between Grace and the plantation's owner, including Leroy Percy, a well-to-do lawyer and political heavyweight. Percy had his people break into Grace's room and steal her notes. In return, Grace went to the press and began feeding them stories about the deplorable working conditions on the plantation. This went so far as to result in one newspaper's headline that declared, Millionaire has slaves. But Percy had the most powerful connections imaginable. He was close personal friends with then-President Theodore Roosevelt, and soon, Grace found herself unceremoniously removed from the Sunnyside investigation. But even still, Grace's report would eventually be released, the end result of which was a slowing of Italian laborers to the Mississippi Delta, as the Italian government caught wind of what was happening and began warning immigrants to stay away from the state. But Grace's reputation would become tarnished in the press. Newspapers referred to her as busybody Quackenbush and often chose to focus on the way she dressed and her appearance rather than the work she was doing. She was also vilified for slowing down the stream of labor that was needed to keep the plantations alive in the Delta. To which Grace responded to reporters that she was glad the plantations were suffering, because all the plantation owners had to do in order to get the ball rolling again would be to improve working conditions. She eventually remarried and took her husband's last name of Humiston. She continued for the next several years working on whatever unusual cases came her way. She once successfully fought to save the life of a man named Stylo, who had been falsely convicted of murder and sentenced to be executed on Sing Sing's death row. Stylo was a hulk of a man who had been accused of murdering his boss and his housekeeper in upstate New York. But after Grace met with Stylo, she came away convinced he was innocent. The man had the IQ of a child and seemed to have no real understanding of what was happening to him. Grace personally scoured the scene of the crime looking for other suspects and eventually found a hobo living in the area she suspected may have been the real perpetrator. But she remained unable to prove it. So instead of continuing to go after the real murderer, she decided to focus on going after the men who falsely arrested her client. As the clock ticked closer to Stylo's execution, Grace set up an elaborate sting operation involving a hidden recording device in which she was able to prove that Stylo's confession had been coerced by a corrupt detective. Stylo was saved from the electric chair with only 15 minutes to spare before the execution was to be carried out. Although Grace Humiston had plenty of such cases we could talk about, it was the disappearance of a young girl in June 1917 that cemented Grace's reputation as an investigator and even earned her the nickname of Mrs. Sherlock Holmes in the press. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. 
On the morning of February 13th, 18-year-old Ruth Kruger left her home on Claremont Avenue. She was last seen wearing a blue velvet coat, a black hat with a flowered ribbon, white kid gloves, her new graduation ring from Wadley High School, and a pair of ice skates dangling from her wrist. She was seen headed in the direction of 127th Street, but she never reached her destination, and she apparently vanished without a trace. The following morning, Ruth's older sister Helen went looking for her throughout the neighborhood. She remembered Ruth had mentioned a motorcycle shop in the area where she could get her skates sharpened. So she decided to stop by and see if Ruth had been by that way. When she arrived at 9.30 that morning, the shop was closed. She returned an hour later to find the shop open. Several women were inside waiting to have their baby carriages repaired by a man who was currently hunched over working on a bicycle. Helen asked the man if a young woman had been in the day before to have her skates sharpened. The man replied he did recall a girl fitting Ruth's description had been there. He said that she had dropped off a pair of ice skates but hadn't returned yet to pick them up. Helen rushed from the shop to tell her father the news. Henry phoned the police and they sent a detective to speak with the shop's owner, Alfredo Kochi. The detective later reported that Kochi was a respectable businessman and even made a brief note in his report that he had searched the cellar. The New York Police Department didn't appear to do much investigating after that and seemed rather content to allow the case to grow cold. But Ruth's story didn't fade away in the press. She was a young, attractive white woman and even long before the days of Nancy Grace and nightly true crime shows, a young white woman's disappearance was enough to captivate the public's attention. Ruth Kruger's case brought attention to what was thought to be widespread white slavery, as it was described in the press. There was a common belief back then that the thousands of young girls who vanished each year were forced into prostitution. An earlier case from Chicago in 1907 had sparked these fears, and although the fervor had somewhat died down, Ruth's case a few years later made it all come rushing back. Back during the height of this hysteria, newspapers began printing daily agony columns listing the names of missing girls. Progressive-era reformers began printing lurid books describing the debauchery awaiting these women. Titles like The Black Traffic and White Girls read like a cross between a porn novel and a warning guide. Many reformers throughout the country also took this opportunity to begin railing against immigrants to the United States, claiming they were changing the very fabric of society for the worse. Many such reformers began making baseless accusations that droves of mainly Greeks, Italians, and Jews were moving their way into otherwise wholesome neighborhoods and actively kidnapping young women to either rape them or sell them into sex slavery. In June 1910, Congress passed the White Slave Traffic Act, better known as the Mann Act, after its author, Congressman James Mann. The Mann Act outlawed the interstate transport of women for quote-unquote immoral purposes, without ever specifying exactly what that meant. This would then allow the Mann Act to be cited in dozens of questionable investigations, including some notable cases involving celebrities such as Frank Lloyd Wright, Charlie Chaplin, and Jack Johnson. There was also actually one major technological innovation that helped change the public's perception of the business of prostitution, the automobile. In the old days, if someone wished to hire the services of a sex worker, they either picked them up off the street or went to a bordello. But the automobile allowed the business to become mobile. It became widely believed this allowed many naive young women to get pulled into the prostitution game and began making house calls. According to a lot of common thinking back then, the very act of a young woman being able to get into a motor vehicle with an unmarried man 
clearly demonstrated the woman's loose morals. The New York City Police Department shared this belief and became convinced this was what happened to Ruth Kruger. One witness claimed to have seen a girl matching Ruth's description climbing into a taxi cab with an unidentified man. This suspect, whose name was never released, was described as someone who had been seen in Ruth's company on several occasions. But the implication was clear. The police believed Ruth was no innocent victim in this crime. But even as the case grew cold, Alfredo Cochi abruptly left the United States and returned to his native Italy. The Kruger family came to believe for some reason the police had actually aided the man in fleeing the country. A frustrated Henry Kruger posted a $1,000 reward for information regarding his missing daughter. He then turned to Grace Humiston for help. Grace threw herself into the case fully, agreeing to work pro bono for as many as 15 hours a day. She began gathering witness statements, focusing heavily on Kochi and the motorcycle shop, since that remained the last location where anyone claimed to have seen Ruth Kruger. One witness recalled seeing Kochi emerge from his basement at around midnight on February 13th, covered in dirt and appearing nervous. Another witness reported the same thing again the following night. Grace grew increasingly suspicious of Kochi. She went to the man's shop, determined to get into the cellar by any means necessary. But when she got there, Kochi's wife appeared at the door, blocking her path. She had a brick in her hand and threatened to bash in Grace's skull as she took another step. But Ruth wasn't giving up. She enlisted the aid of a hard-boiled Hungarian detective named Julius Kron. Grace was convinced by now that the motorcycle shop was the key to the mystery. She tried a number of things to gain access to the building, including tunneling through the street and setting up Kron as a fake mechanic to get inside. Grace also reported the threat Mrs. Kochi had made against her to Police Commissioner Arthur Woods, who eventually granted her a search warrant. She gained the assistance of Patrick Salam, a close friend of the Kruger family, to help her search the premises. Salam made his way to the main basement room directly beneath the shop. There, he found a collection of benches, toolboxes, and chests of drawers pulled together into a triangular work area. He noticed that one of the chests was sitting at an off angle from the others. He asked the two assistants to help move it aside. Beneath the chest, they discovered that the concrete floor had been broken into with a blunt tool, probably an axe or a hatchet, then sliced open with a saw. The men continued digging, removing layers of dirt, ashes, and broken concrete. Eventually, they dug their way down to find a pair of dark-colored trousers with pinstripes and stains, along with a large rubber sheet which had been spread out to prevent odors from rising to the surface. At about three feet below the surface, one of the men's shovels struck something hard. Salam lowered himself into the hole and began to dig with his bare hands, only to reveal the sharp knob of the exposed hip of a human body. The men cleared away the dirt and hauled the body to the surface. There was a length of hemp rope knotted tightly around the ankles, sawing into the flesh. A towel was knotted around the victim's throat. Kid gloves still covered the dead young woman's hands, and a black hat lay smashed in the pit beneath where the body lay. The last thing they found was a pair of ice skates covered in blood. Although the body was badly decomposed, everyone became convinced this was Ruth Kruger based on the clothing the remains were dressed in. Grace Hummison confirmed these clothes matched those witnesses described Ruth wearing on the day she vanished. She convinced Henry Kruger not to go into the basement and view the body. Instead, Henry later identified Ruth's graduation ring that was taken off the corpse's hand. Ruth's skull had been crushed from behind just above the left ear. An autopsy revealed a massive gash in Ruth's abdomen that stretched all the way to her spine. 
this, the medical examiner said, had been done with her own ice skate. The medical assistant to the district attorney determined that the wound to the abdomen had occurred post-mortem, after the victim had died of the skull injury. Italian authorities refused to extradite Alfredo Cochi, even though he was arrested in Bologna and later confessed to the murder of Ruth Kruger. Cochi later claimed he had never seen Ruth before the day she stepped into his shop. He said he didn't know what came over him, but Ruth's beauty was overwhelming, and he knew he had to have her. Everything that happened next, he told police, felt like a dream. He was sentenced to 27 years in prison. For a little while, the newspapers hailed Grace Humiston a hero. It was the New York Times who dubbed her Mrs. Sherlock Holmes, even though she publicly derided the nickname, saying that her powers of deduction were nothing like the fictional detectives, and rather came about from a careful study of the facts. But although the murderer had been brought to justice, Grace wasn't finished yet. She publicly accused the police of gross negligence. This caused such a public uproar that a corruption investigation was launched that would reveal a long-standing, mutually beneficial relationship between the cops and Alfredo Cochi. The way it worked was if an officer arrested someone on a minor offense, the offender would then be taken to Cochi instead of jail. Cochi would inform the offender that he could make all their charges simply go away for a small fee. That fee would then be split between Kochi and the arresting officer. Grace also took steps to reform Ruth Kruger's image. The newspapers at the behest of the police had tarnished Ruth's image, painting her as a wanton wild child who was flirting with prostitution. Grace began giving interviews to the papers describing Ruth as an innocent young victim who had been kidnapped and murdered by a depraved individual. She even took the opportunity to suggest that Kochi may have intended to sell Ruth into slavery himself. Grace told reporters there were many more missing young women just like Ruth out there. She said the police needed to create a special bureau devoted to missing and exploited young women. In July 1917, in a response to the public outcry, Grace Humiston was appointed as a special investigator to the NYPD, charged with tracking missing girls and uncovering evidence of white slavery. She also formed the Morality League of America, a group devoted to fighting vice and saving young women from a life of prostitution. But Grace's fame turned out to be short-lived. Just before the United States was about to begin fighting in World War I, Grace made some shocking accusations about a sex trafficking ring being operated out of a U.S. Army camp on Long Island. Grace set up her own sting investigation when she sent out covert agents to see if the rumors were true. But the Army caught wind of what Grace was doing? And as a result, Grace was vilified in the press as going against our brave young troops just as they were preparing to fight in France. Despite that public humiliation, Grace kept working to give a voice to the poor. She had a few more noteworthy cases throughout her life. She was even marked for death once by the mysterious Italian criminal gang known as the Black Hand. Mary Grace Humiston died in 1948 at the age of 77 in French Hospital. Prior to her death, she had been living quietly at the Vanderbilt Hotel. Although in her last few years, she mostly disappeared from public life and the public record. But Grace did spend much of her life fighting for people who desperately needed help. All along battling against a male-dominated society who would have loved to have made her disappear. Much like the many vanished and powerless women, Grace Humiston helped throughout her career. Oh, there's one little side note I should mention. Far and away, the most famous case Grace Humiston ever worked on was that of the disappearance of Ruth Kruger. 
And although she was directly responsible for bringing Ruth's murderer, Alfredo Kochi, to justice, the two of them never actually met in person during the course of the investigation. But that doesn't mean their lives may not have intersected in other ways. You may recall the story of Sunnyside Plantation, where, earlier in Grace's career, she helped many Italian immigrants escape the terrible peonage system in the South. Well, if you were to go back and look at Ruth's notes she took back then, she interviewed a number of immigrants who managed to escape the plantation as she learned about their terrible plight. Grace, being Grace, took studious notes of everything and made sure to copy down each of these witnesses' names. Some of those lists still exist, and if you scroll through them, you might notice one name in particular that jumps out at you. Mind you, there's no way of knowing for certain if it was the same person, but one of those names on that list was Kochi. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have a new Patreon supporter to thank. Thank you to Jamie for signing up and helping support the show. Just a reminder, the patrons to the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our ever-growing library of exclusive mini-episodes. If you're interested in helping support the show, I'll put a link to both our merch store and our Patreon in the show notes. Another great way you can help support the show is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's rankings, which spreads the word to even more people. If you're not on Apple, not to worry. You can also find us on Spotify, Stitcher, and most of the other places you get your podcasts. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere, check us out on social media and follow along. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also feel free to send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com and let us know how we're doing. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.